morning, everyone. Thank you all for being here today. My name is Ja'Kyra Green, and I am one of the student members of the MLK Committee. Before we begin today's convo, I wanted to begin by reading the land acknowledgement. We acknowledge that we gather at Goshen College on the traditional land of the Potawatomi and Miami peoples, past and present and honor, with gratitude the land itself and the people who have stewarded it throughout the generations. This caused us to commit to continuing to learn how to be better stewards of the land we inhabit as well. Thank you. Uh, good morning, my name is Mariella. Um, welcome to the 2024 MLK Day celebration. Um, it's entitled Black Housing and Un Unsung Shiro's Champions of Change in Elkhart County. Uh, so this theme was carefully crafted by exploring the historical aspects of MLK's legacy and brainstorming focal points. Our discussions uh, as a committee led us to recognize the often overlooked contributions of women, the unsung heroines of the movement. In our local community, we've uncovered a wealth of passion, talent, and advocacy that often goes unnoticed. Our goal is to shine a light on these hidden gems, emphasizing the collaboration required to acknowledge history in its entirety, both the good and challenging moments. One aspect we focused on in particular was housing, secured and lack thereof in the injustice that has contributed to the disruption of black communities. We also acknowledge the community champions of Elkhart County and its surrounding areas. We want to draw attention to the interconnectedness between places like Benham West in Elkhart and Better Homes of South Bend and the historical impact of redlining. The committee's exploration included a valuable experience with Asia Ellington, DEI director at a Better Homes event, providing us with insights and perspectives. As we embark on this year's events, we aim to make them meaningful and educational while encouraging a call to action. Together, let us honor MLK's vision through reflection, awareness, and a commitment to positive change. With that being said, thank you for joining us in commemorating the special occasion. Please stand as you're able and join us in singing one of Dr. Martin Luther King's favorite songs, Precious Lord. It's number 610 in Voices Together.
Good morning, everyone. Can you all hear me? Okay. So first, well, my name is Aja Ellington. I'm the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and also the Campus Counselor. And we are out here in negative degrees, so I want us to clap it up for that. <clears throat> so I will be introducing our keynote speaker. She told me she wanted something short and simple, so of course I'm gonna do the opposite. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, brace yourselves for the powerhouse, the indomitable force, our shero, Sunita Millsaps. <laughs> with, with a relentless, excuse me, sorry. <laughs> with a relentless commitment to community engagement and social justice, Sunita stands tall as the executive director of the Center for Community Engagement at Goshen College. She not only leads the charge in connecting the college with local community, but also provides unwavering leadership as the executive director of Mennonite Women USA. A dynamic force in her role at the Mennonite Central Committee, Sunitha has been a catalyst for change in areas such as restorative justice, mass incarceration, and youth service as a pastor with over 17 years of experience. She fearlessly leads congregations and communities defining as the greatest call of her life. In the realm of education, she chairs the board for the Tolson Center for Community Excellence in Elkhart and stands as a proud member of Alpha Kappa Sorority Incorporated. Sunitha's impact echoes far and wide, touching the lives of women and children in the critical areas of violence, education, and spiritual development. Get ready to be inspired, moved, and empowered by the extraordinary Sunitha Millsaps, our true Shiro. first start by saying thank you. Uh, way too much. Way too much. Um, then you set me up that I have to do better. Right? So if I blow it, blame Aja for setting y'all up for something. Um, it is a blessing uh, to stand before you today. Um, we are going to talk about a tough topic. And so I'm going to ask you first to join me in prayer um, before we start. Creator and most righteous God, I give thanks to you this day. I ask this moment as you prepare your children to hear from on high that you hide Sunitha behind the cross so that these, your children, hear from you what you have for them today. I pray, Lord, that we leave this place just a little bit different from the way we came, knowing ourselves and you just a little bit better. In Christ Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, we're going to be talking about um, housing here in the United States. Um, and I want to make it really clear from the very beginning that the housing here in the United States is a prime example of social engineering. Our government would never claim that that is what was happening, but it is exactly what was happening here in the United States. And so I want you to hold that truth with you as we go through the next 
I don't know, hour and a half? What do we have here? <laughs> I don't even have an hour and a half worth of material, so I definitely ain't doing that. Um, but, uh, but I do want you to hold seriously what it means. And I want you to think about right now where you live, maybe the home you grew up in, the neighborhood you grew up in. I want you to think about the legacy of your family, how you arrived at the places that you are. For many of us who may not have a legacy at all, I guarantee you there are those among us who never grew up in a house at all. And so I want you to sit with that as we begin to talk about how the United States did some very amazing and also evil things. I want to start with the Constitution because I want to help you see how it is grounded in the very policies of the United States. So I want to start with the Constitution so you don't have a hard time getting back at it. First of all, I want you to pay attention to the Fifth Amendment. The Fifth Amendment talks about taking the government's right to physically take property from its owner. Eminent domain, most of us have heard about that, we understand that. But it also says that it must provide for a just compensation to the property owner. It must provide for a just compensation. The 13th Amendment, neither slave nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for a crime where, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist in the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. jurisdiction. Neither slave nor involuntary servitude except a punishment of a crime. The 14th Amendment, equal protection under the law. It forces a state to govern impartially, not drawing distinction between individuals solely on the differences that are irrelevant to the legitimate governmental objective. It is designed to protect our civil rights. So let's look at some of the government policies. Many of us have heard of the New Deal of 1933. Our great president, Franklin D. Roosevelt, served for four terms, unprecedented. Throughout history, I remember growing up and learning about the New Deal and thinking, man, he was pretty amazing. I would later come to understand that, eh, he was okay for some people. He wasn't actually amazing for me and my people. He would create policies that started first in the federal public works. And these policies that they created were designed to work at an issue that was facing the nation at that time that had to do with a shortage of housing. There just wasn't enough housing. And the design for the policy stated that it was for white, low, and middle-income families. 
there were a small number of housing that they provided for low-income blacks, very small. But remember, this is for a housing shortage. As they began this process, the Federal Housing Administration of 1934 would then expand it even more and create subsidized suburbs, rich, which required that no housing be sold to African Americans, and it could not be resold to African Americans. So when you hear people, especially in this day and age, talk about government support, safety nets, subsidies, and how they have a problem with all of that, many of the very people who are saying that today benefited from subsidies uh, created by our, our federal government. So it's real easy to decide not to do it now when you have already benefited from them. These very policies shaped by our federal government would create what is now known as mandatory segregation. Now let's think about that for a minute. A government who first says equal protection under the law had already within its own writing created mandatory segregation because its policies were not designed for people of color. Those policies were written with only white Americans in their view. Even by 1933, African-Americans are still considered less than people we can do without, people we don't have to do extra for. We must understand that the housing realities for African-Americans today are a direct fallout from these governmental policies. There were loan conditions that were created in and from these policies for banks and mortgages. They actually put in restrictive covenants. If you went to get a loan at this time and you were white and you were moving in one of these really great suburbs that they were so happy to say how well America was doing, they wrote in the covenants that if you got a loan, you could not sell them to African-Americans. If the banks gave a loan, they could not give the loan to African-Americans. These were open and no secret. So that also shows you how much they felt they were correct and how right they believed that they were and how little they thought of us. They openly wrote it in everything that they have. So if you don't believe me, simply go out and do the research. These loans and government subsidies were given to white Americans, and at the same time, they deny subsidies for African Americans. The reasoning that they would give is simply by living close to blacks, housing values would decline. You just stand too close to us. The bad will rub off. 
The problem with their reasoning is, the reality is, African Americans worked so very hard for the little bit that they had. They never knew what the next thing would be. And so they held on and took care of what they had. So their reasoning was just the opposite of what was true. Yet, this is what they used as reasoning not to sell to us. Now, I just read to you the uh, different amendments in our Constitution. And so just like many people back then, they did their best to, to challenge these laws and these policies. However, our courts would uphold every one of their policies, knowing that they did not fit the actual Constitution that they themselves had written, right? So it wasn't even about the law itself, it was about us. We weren't welcome. We weren't seen as people or even human for them to have equal protection under the law. I don't have to give equal protection to somebody that ain't equal to me, right? I can take whatever I want. And whether I give them anything, they should be thankful for what I give them. As you watch the documentary today about what happened at Benham West, remember the taking. And remember just compensation. These policies would, ch would be challenged and cause the issues that came from the policies for generations to come. The things that happened based on these policies were things like redlining. How many of you know what redlining is? Raise your hand high of you. Great, great. I don't have to go through that. Just know that I would have been redlined, all right? Redlining put conditions around mortgages around our communities to make sure you did not sell to white people in those spaces unless they were buying the property for rental property for us but not that they would live there, right? To give favorable mortgages to whites who lived outside of those areas, and the closer you were to it, the more at risk you were. We also talk a lot about white flight that happened over this period of time. I used to think white flight was just the fact that white people didn't want to live around us. I understand now that white flight, it was a direct reflection of these policies that were put in place. They created subsidies for them to move. And if it's not good for me to be by those people, and you're gonna give me a really nice house out in the suburbs, I'm gonna take that really nice house out in the suburbs. Even though I did have some black friends that I used to live next to, right? White flight was more than just white people not wanting to be around us. White flight was a condition of policies that helped segregate our nation. And then there were the walls. In many subsidies, in many of these uh, uh, suburbs, 
Many communities not only built these wonderful little perfectly white communities, but they also walled many of them in. The more wealthy you were, the bigger the wall to save you from those people. And our government made sure they had everything they needed to create that safe space for them. One of the biggest ways our federal government hurt us was by putting highways directly through our communities. They intentionally picked areas that would go directly through the African-American communities to move us out, to disperse us from one another, to make life for us extremely hard and more than anything, to get white people safely from one space to the other, because heaven forbid they want to be around those black people. Right? However, the same policies that were upheld in our courts benefited whites. They were able to, regain, to gain equity in their homes. They were able to leave legacies for the next generation. They got tax breaks on their mortgages. Even the GI Bill gave benefits to World War II veterans through the Veterans Administration and eventually the Federal Housing Administration policies. However, black soldiers could not benefit fully from the bill, which was specifically designed for veterans. Now, some, of these, some soldiers would say, well, I, I, it did, it helped me but it only helped you move in the areas that they meant for you to move into in the first place. Not any area that you yourself may have desired to live. These policies would be challenged and ca causing the issues that came from these policies were challenged and would cause problems that would later go on for generations. Generations later, these are the things that we see. African-Americans, African-American income is 60% of whites today. African-Americans' wealth is 5% of white wealth. Now, I want you to think about some extremely wealthy black people. The Beyonce's, the Oprah's right, LeBron James, like these are some extremely wealthy black folks. And even with the skew of these very, very wealthy black people, we are still only 5%. There is something really wrong. Home ownership in 2021, 9.2 million more homeowners were uh, created in the last decade here in the United States. For African Americans, the rate of home ownership is 44%. For whites, is 72.7%. Every group closed their gap in a decade, except for African Americans. Ours still remain roughly the same. White homes in those suburbs that were wonderfully created by our government, today most of them are, are worth around $300,000 to $400,000. The black homes in those red line communities 
values are often less than $80,000. Our educational systems also come from the very policies that put us in these situations. Simply compare Carmel High School in Indianapolis, Indiana. Who's from Indianapolis here? Anybody from Indianapolis? Okay. One back there. <laughs> Carmel, Indiana, I mean, Carmel High School seems like a college. They have things in Carmel that we don't even have here at Goshen College. All right? Carmel has it. But when you compare that to a place like Elkhart High School, where they are trying to decide how to keep schools open, when they're trying to build facilities to help with the sports, why is one school suffering so much and yet another school has all it needs and some more? Now I'm gonna get you to another place that will help you as you go into your movie and stuff today. Urban Renewal, which was also called Negro Removal, was a new wave of governmental policies designed to assist white families at the cost of African Americans. In the 1950s and 60s, cities began to demolish black housing in order to make room for middle-class, middle-income white families. So that's where those highways and stuff start really taking off. These areas were designed to get white people closer to the downtown and closer to the city centers. But in order to do that, you got to remove some people who have already for generations been sleeping in these areas. The public housing by our government that was designed for um, white families in the 1930s had now been moved to the BIPOC community. So the white people who had gotten these public housing, large projects, large buildings with multi uh, floors, right, that was designed in the 30s to help white families is now becoming a place for black families because the white families have been moved comfortably to the suburbs and now that those apartments need, are now being taken over by people of color, right? Today, you will hear about the Benham West Project, which is, a, is prime for our, at a local example of how the state and federal policies changed black lives. Unfortunately, we could not bring the Better Homes docuplay um, this weekend. I really wanted you guys to see that. But it also tells the story of how these policies played out in South Bend. And in communities, these same things played out across the United States, even for Dr. Martin Luther King. The Chicago Freedom Movement in 1966 
was a movement in Chicago where the people, black people, decided that they, one, what their living conditions were were bad enough, but also what the government had been doing was illegal. The Southern Christian Leadership Council then invites Dr. King to Chicago so he can see firsthand the inhabitable living conditions of people in Chicago, these slums that they would now be labeled. Dr. King and his wife were so shocked by the living conditions, they moved into one of the apartments in Lawndale, in a Lawndale neighborhood in Chicago. The national attention caused the apartment owner to quickly begin to rehab the building, right? Because heaven forbid, now they see what I'm doing, right? The people in the community at that time and in that house were so grateful that finally something was being done to things they had been asking years to, for somebody to pay attention to. The vice lords, a gang in Chicago, came by to see Dr. King to say thank you for what you are doing in this space. The conditions were so horrible King and other Chicago leaders began planning for several marches to address the issue. Now, there are a few things you need to understand about these marches that happen in, in Chicago. One is, Dr. King learns really quick the different and so, the difference between Southern whites and Northern whites. He even goes on to say some of the most vicious things he ever heard came from the Northern whites. Now, for all of us who have been living here for a while, I really want you to settle into that for a minute, right? What does that say? Dr. King would go on with the community and planned these marches, and they would march. Uh, 30,000 would, would march from Soldier Field in Chicago to the city building uh, in down, uh, downtown Chicago to, Richard Mayor, to Mayor Richard Daly's office. Now, for those of you who might know Chicago politics, Richard Daly was one of the most racist mayors of all time. He is credited for actually helping carve out these very different neighborhoods we celebrate today. Chinatown, Little Italy, right? Back of the yards. All of these were created because he decided that that mandatory segregation was important, that we actually like being with our own better. He is credited for this. They march to his office and nail up uh, demands that they feel like the city should take care of, right? They are met with with. Uh, daily, violently, and dismissively. 
they would continue marching several times throughout the city. And then over time, they realized that they were making little progress, but not enough progress. And because the city was so violent and the people were so hard, they began to sort of back away from some of this. Dr. King would then turn his attention towards what we now understand as the Fair Housing Act of 1968. Dr. King and, and others, they would say that he did not do well in Chicago, but he was clear that the steps and the strides they had made in Chicago were the exact same things. Because of those things are exactly what got us the Fair Housing Act of 1968. The realities of places like what happened at Benham West, the, the Chicago Freedom Movement, gave us communities like Benham West, one that I grew up in, the one we call the village. I grew up in a community where we were connected. I grew up in a community where I was loved. I grew up in a community where people watched out for me and, uh, and other children around us. I grew up in a community where my teachers looked like me. I grew up in a community where even the, at that time, firefighters lived two doors down. I grew up in a community where I had hope that there may be something different from the life that I myself was already living. But when those highways, when that urban remo remo removal started to take effect, we lost our leaders. We lost those very people in our community that were moving us in a certain direction. We now are fighting to save the next generation. Today's realities, the statistics for African-Americans compared to whites are staggering. Overt racism is found in every aspect of the things we try to do. We are denied and we are attacked for things like diversity, equity, and inclusion. We are denied and attacked if we talk about social emotional learning. And you know what, truth be told, we have been here before. Black Lives Matters, the Civil Rights Movement, the Black Power Movement, Reconstruction, Affirmative Action. We try over and over and over again to say, I am here, see me, respect me, help me. And we are always turned away. There are wonderful people that have long come before us. People like Dr. Martin Luther King, who spoke of nonviolence and peace. We had leaders like Malcolm X, who spoke about building and creating our own. We had people like W.E.B. Du Bois, who spoke about education and self-actualization. We had people like Booker T. Washington, that spoke about hard work and providing, providing that we were good and upstanding citizens. But now you have people like Sunitha who call for a new movement of black excellence. That all these, that to, 
to bring together all of these past understandings and do something with them. But all of us moving forward to make it happen. For me, some of the next steps for us are the fact that we have to study history with fresh eyes and be truthful that people like Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, was not really for everyone. We have to champion reparations. If subsidies were okay for one group that actually hurt another group, we need to really be talking about some reparations. But we start talking about that and people get all clammed up, so let me not say too much about reparations. We need to educate, each one of us need to educate ourselves and our communities on the truth. We need to demand authentic programs for diversity, equity, and inclusion. We need to call for a new government social engineering that supports BIPOC communities in education, finances, and housing. Oh, wait, first of all, I went to, I'm gonna back up one real quick, sorry. We are talking about sheroes today. And so I wanna tell you about this particular shero. Shirley Chisholm is one of my sheroes. Shirley Chisholm was the first African-American female congressperson. But not only that, she fought through the feminist movement and I, when I say she fought through it, I want you to understand. She started out with all the other feminists, right? Until she started to hear that the messages that the black woman had and needed were not being addressed or were just outright looked over. Shirley Chisholm decided they weren't gonna decide what she did, she was gonna do it herself. And she would run for office she was the first African-American and first female to lead the political party for president of the United States. That's a shero. Not on, they have a movie coming out about her. I can't wait to go see it. I encourage you to go see it too. But the amazing thing for me when it comes to Shirley Chisholm is not only did the women turn against her, the black men in Congress turned against her. And that sister stood up and said, I don't care what y'all doing. I know what I'm doing is correct and I will stand by myself. That's a shero. I also want to show you these resources. I encourage you to watch 13, From Slave to Criminals, with one amendment that was by filmmaker Ava DuVernay. Reparations, a Christian call for repentance and repair by Duke Nolan and Gregory Thompson. Colonizing wealth, indigenous wisdom to heal divides and restore balance by Edgar Villanova and the color of law, a forgotten history of how our government Segregated America by Richard Rothstein. 
These are just a few, but if you have not read them, I will say again, you should. As you consider the house that you live in today, as you consider the loan that you got, as you consider the legacy that was passed on to you and that you may yet pass on to your children, make no mistake, your federal government helped you to do it, and they helped you to do it without helping us. And if we want to make things right, some social engineering has to take place. And African Americans and other BIPOC communities must be at the top of the list. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Sainita. Please stand one more time and join us in singing Total Praise from Voices Together, number 633. 